Good morning. I am uh, grateful to be able to open God's word with you this morning, but I'll just tell you, I would have come just for the singing. Um, what a gift to be able to sing together and worship uh, the Lord uh, together. Um, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. Uh, looking around the room, I see faces that I don't quite recognize and would love an opportunity, though, um, to connect with you. And so um, please, if I haven't had a chance to meet you before I forget, um, I'm going to just invite you. I'll be down front after we're going to receive uh, communion this morning um, as we remember uh, the one who secured our life um, that we just sang about and the hope that we have. Um, as I look around the room, I want to just, I don't see him, but um, if you see Pastor Kyle, we might need a fourth tray. Um, so if you just uh, get that prepped and ready. Um, as uh, If you were not with us uh, last weekend, we began a study in the book of Acts, um, beginning with uh, chapter one, of course, and made our way through the first few verses. And as we kicked that uh, series off, we're kicking off this new series. If you have uh, not been with us before, um, if you missed last weekend, that's okay. I know we were a lot of us coming back still from spring break and other um, just opportunities to be away. And so I um, invite you to go wherever you find a podcast and uh, find that uh, on the Spotify or, or the music thing. The, I don't know. Yeah, sorry. I just figured, just described to you how old I am and ancient that I'm just, wherever you find the podcast. Um, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. You can go to our website. Um, since it is a new series, I encourage you to just stay current with us. So go back and catch up because not because the message was that great, but it'll help you to understand even as we begin to work our way through this because Luke tells us what he is intending to do, what God is doing um, in this book. And it is Jesus has uh, handed off the baton in a sense, passed the baton from the work that he has done in Luke's gospel. It was recounted all that uh, Jesus did. And as we begin Acts chapter one, Jesus is handing the baton off to the Holy Spirit. And he says, wait, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And the same spirit that was at work in me, that you experienced at work in me as we went out and we saw all these and you saw people raised to life and all that God did, that same spirit is at work in you. It will be at work in you and will go ahead of you. And you will see the kingdom built to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. You will testify to the work that I have done. You will testify about my life, the life that I bring to bear all the way to the ends of the earth. And he taught them that he reminded the disciples as they asked, is this the time where you will restore Israel, where you will, in a sense, establish your kingdom in Israel? And they thought that this was some sort of an earthly thing that Jesus was up to, restoring Israel to be the kingdom of God, to throw off all of the oppressors and all those who hated them, all those who uh, did all sorts of evil to them. And Jesus says, no, it's not about Israel. The Father will worry about Israel. You don't need to worry about that. What you need to know what you need to be confident in, what you need to understand the promise I have made to you is that I will build my kingdom through your testimony to the ends of the earth and there is no earthly kingdom. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, there is no earthly kingdom that will be supreme or reign over my kingdom. My kingdom will come and it will reach the ends of the earth. That was the promise that Jesus made to his disciples and he says, so go and wait and my spirit will come soon. And this is what will happen. And so we pick up in verse 12 of Acts chapter 1 where we're going to see the continuation as the disciples begin to wait. If it's possible, would you please stand out of reverence for God's word as I read from Acts chapter 1, picking up in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, 
which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all, in the, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the, the field was called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, and, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you Two, you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, which teaches us, which is good for instruction, correction, rebuke. All the things that you intended to do, it will do this morning. And so we yield our hearts and our minds, our lives to you and ask that your word inform us and do what you intended to do in our, our lives. We thank you for it. We pray um, just your blessings upon this gathering. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So as I read that story, that text, that passage, the end of chapter one, you can pick up that this is a narrative of the events that followed. As Jesus has ascended, he has left the disciples. They have now been sent back to Jerusalem to the upper room. And as he has sent them, these are the events that unfold. And so I want to just sort of quickly, in a sense, recount for you or tell you, describe for you a little bit of what is happening in this passage as we work our way through from verses 12 through 26. And I just want to summarize that for you. And then I want to come back, and this is a little bit of a different sort of uh, delivery method for some of you who have been around for a while. Then I want to come back and I want to focus in on three verses that I think are very helpful to help us understand how do we apply this story that just seems like a story about some People in the past, yes, they were God's people. What were they doing? And help us understand how we can apply that to our own lives. And so some context for what has happened here. First, it says there in verse 12 that they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet. They're on the Mount of Olives. This is a separation. There's sort of two mountains or hilltops. We might describe this isn't Colorado mountains. This is a desert. And so this is um, uh, Middle Eastern mountains. And so you have the Mount of Olives and then you have the Kidron Valley that separates those two. And on the other side is the Temple Mount. You can stand on the Mount of Olives and you can see the Temple Mount on the other side. It's about a Sabbath day's journey, which is in a sense, three quarters of a length of what they, the reason it's recorded as a Sabbath day's journey. It was about as far as you could walk without breaking the law. 
If you were walking on Sabbath, you were allowed to walk about three quarters of a mile without that becoming work. And so the journey between where they were and going back to Jerusalem to the upper room, this is what was happened. So they began to walk. It says that the whole group is there. The disciples return to Jerusalem and there are the 12 plus all of these women, the family of Jesus and a total of about 120 people. Now, The reason that Luke records 120 is very important. It's not that there was only 120 people or that that's an exact number. Again, more than likely, it's 120 plus. But according to Jewish law, 120 people was what was required in order for a sect of people or a community of people to be recognized as its own community. And so Luke is recording that this new community of people numbered 120 and therefore, according to Jewish law, could be recognized as its own new community of people. What we are seeing here, the story that is told as these people gather, the 120 plus some of them, they are gathered together. This is the very first time since Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father that the church is gathered. We are seeing in this story the first time in human history that the church is gathered together. And so they gather in this upper room. Just another point about the upper room, this is more than likely not the same upper room that the disciples gathered in where Jesus shared a meal with them. That room was probably a little bit smaller. This was gonna be a much larger room because again, there's 120 plus people. And so in that context, there are stairways. Usually the homes or these buildings would have some exterior stairways. You could walk up to a second or third level. There'd be an open room there where they could gather. And this is the place that they used to gather together. Luke continues as he talks about, or he quotes Peter beginning in 15, Peter begins to speak, it says. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, and we're going to come back to that, and he begins to address them to tell them, we need to replace Judas. And there's a parenthetical that is found in verse 18 that Luke kind of interrupts what he's quoting Peter to say, this describes what happened to Judas. Judas went out, purchased a field, fell headlong, his bowels burst open, gushed out, it says. Rated R version, I get it, all right? But this is what has actually happened to Judas. Now, some of you, I expect a few of you who've been around for a while, you're Bible scholars, and you would say to yourself, but hey, Matthew's account of Judas's life is a little bit different. And I highlight this because sometimes this can be confusing. We read here in this account, this sort of short parenthetical about what happened to Judas, but if we were studying, if you're studying Matthew in your fight club or in some other gathering of believers, you're saying it talks about Judas with a lot more detail. It says he was hung. It says that there was an exchange of money again for the field. The field is different, all of these sorts of things. And you might begin to be tempted to think that God's word is in conflict with itself. This is why I highlight this, because I want you to know pastorally, God's word is never in conflict. What's happening here is that there's a different purpose in Luke's writing versus Matthew's writing talking about this. Luke is focusing on Peter choosing the replacement of Judas. In verse 18, even in most of your Bibles, and you'll see, I think, on the screen, it's in parentheses. There's a parenthetical. I took it out. Yes, no, it's there. I always got worried about myself. But yeah, there's a a parenthesis. Luke is just inserting a little detail about Judas. Here's what I mean by this. 
If I were to tell you that athlete A transferred, uh, he entered the uh, transfer portal and left one school to go to another, I'm talking about college sports here, if you follow that world a little bit, and I would say to you, this athlete left, he entered the transfer portal and he went to another school. I've told you what has happened in that person's life, I've given you a little details about the life. But then you might talk to the family member and the family member of that said athlete would say he entered the transfer portal because he had kind of gotten in the bad way with the coach. He didn't like that coach. And the new school offered him an NIL deal that paid him a lot of money to come to the new school. Now you have a lot more details. Matthew, in a sense, gives a lot more of the details around this. And Luke is just giving this summary account of the fact, the reality, that Judas, he got his reward. That's what Luke wants you to know, that Judas exchanged Christ for something else, for something earthly. He felt like he could manufacture the kingdom of God. Whatever his motivation was, it was to obtain what he thought he wanted rather than trusting in God's way. And Luke wants us to know that he gets his reward. Then they come to choosing Matthias and they select these two. First, we have Joseph called Barsabbas, called Justice. I know you're like, what is his name? Well, he went by a few names. And so he goes by a few names. They select these two, and Matthias is the other one. Um, sometimes jokingly, I think, you know, God chose Matthias just because it was a little easier to write the rest of the way out. But no, he chooses Matthias, and there's this idea of casting lots. What is happening here is that in this context, very often, they would cast lots to discern, to determine what is God's choice here. Rather than taking that into human, sort of uh, under the human authority, they don't even have a vote here. It's we want to know what God's selection for this replacement would be. And so they would take something that would look like a dice and they would mark it and they would throw that out just like we might roll a dice and however it would land, that would tell them God's decision, his choice. And so that's how Matthias was chosen to do this. The other thing that I really like about this story in reference to the three named man, Joseph called Barsabbas, called Justice, even with that confusing name, there is reference to him in the New Testament later. If you're like me, if I was the one that was Joseph called Barsabbas, called Justice, and I wasn't chosen, and Matthias got chosen to be the replacement apostle, I would be tempted to take my ball and go home. And just say, okay, I'm out, I'm done with this. But it says we can know in other places in the New Testament that this man continued to be faithful to God's calling on his life. And no, he wasn't chosen to be one of the 12 to replace um, uh, uh, Judas, but he was used by God. And he was faithful where God had called him to, and we know that he was used. We don't have the full story of his life. Like just many of the disciples, we don't know much more than they're referenced in a line of disciples or referred to as the apostles. But we know that he was faithful and obedient to what God had called him to do. It's a good encouragement to us all. God is the one who calls. God is the one who chooses. God is the one who uses us. Let us be grateful and let us have joy in his grace to use us and move in our lives. And so they choose Matthias. He is replaced to, choose, uh, to, uh, to be one of the apostles. Last thing, why is it that they needed to replace Judas in the first place? I referenced the 120. The 120 was, in a sense, allowed them to be called a an entity, to have a community of people referenced as Christians is who they would become. When it says brothers there, that's another word to just describe the church. 
Well, with having your own community, you had a ruling council, and the apostles were appointed, were called by Jesus to be witnesses to the Jews. And there were 12 because they were representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. So one apostle for every one of the tribes of Israel. And so it was important, and as Peter's going to get to, it's commanded of us in Scripture, we're told in Scripture, to find his replacement. And so they needed to have 12 because the 12 was the number that Jesus had chosen. And so that is why they had to find that replacement. So as we dig in on this, why does all this matter? And what can we learn about this story, this season, where the apostles are waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and really to begin their ministry? What can we learn that is helpful in our own lives? Well, I want to focus first on verse 14. All these, this is in a sense a summary of what is about to happen. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were devoting themselves to prayer. I titled this sermon, Prepare in Prayer, because they are preparing for the ministry that God has entrusted them and given to them. And as they prepare, prepare, the first thing they do is they pray. The church in its very first gathering in the history of the world, commits to prayer. This can teach us a lot. Prayer is the evidence of faith. I want you to think about the circumstances that these people find themselves in. The disciples and all the 120, they're gathered. They've just seen Jesus depart from them. He has left. He's told them that the Holy Spirit is coming, but they're in this waiting period. They're waiting for God to continue what he has started to move. And as they're waiting, the very first thing that they do is they pray. The reason that they would pray is because they had faith. They they believed the promise that Jesus had told them. They believed it. They had faith. The reason that we pray, the reason it's so vital for us to pray, and the reason that we can pray with confidence and with hope and with joy and with expectation and all the things that we pray with and that I hope we're able to pray with is because we truly believe. We believe what God has told us. We believe the promise of the gospel. We believe that these elements that we're going to take that symbolize the broken body and shed blood of Christ has secured for us a life that we had no ability to secure for our own. And because we believe that, we go to God in prayer. That's the means that he has allowed us to do that. If we take the counter of that, I think one of the reasons that we so often don't pray or perhaps we don't pray is because we don't really believe, right? We're not sure that God really hears us. We're not sure that God really cares. But let us be a people who like this early church gather together and commit to pray because we have faith. Let our faith be evident in how we pray. The book of James talks about that there is faith and there is actions that are in response to that faith. And sometimes that's gotten a little bit out of order in church history and in the history of the world. But what we can know is that James teaches us that if we really believe, there will be actions that flow from that belief. There will be a way of living. There will be an obedience to God's word. And God has given us the gift of prayer. If we have faith, let us pray as evidence of that faith. The second thing I think we can learn from this is that prayer is the evidence of great need. It's the evidence of our understanding of the need that we have. 
Again, think about what is happening in this, in this context. These disciples have just seen Jesus leave them. He has departed from them. And they have been told that they will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. I don't know about you, but if that's me, I'm thinking, I don't know how he's going to do that. I don't know how I'm supposed to do that. Here's what happens to me in my life. If there's some sort of big task or there's something out there that's a little heavy and I realize I've got to have this conversation with this person or I've got to deal with this circumstance, I've got to meet with this person, all those sorts of things, all part of my life, all things that, yes, in a sense I enjoy but also sometimes can weigh on me, here's what I do. I lay in bed at night and I begin to just sort of process through that. And what if I say this and then how's that going to go? And then he's going to say that and then there's going to be a response. And I, oh, but what if I said that wrong? And then, oh man, I misstepped over here. And then I look up and it's three in the morning. And I'm like, what is going on? My mind has just gone all sorts of places just thinking about this task in front of me. And these disciples have been told they're going to be the witnesses to the ends of the earth. I can tell you just as a testimony as we began to pray and believe that God had called us to plant this church almost 15 years ago. And then fast forward a few years and we actually started the labor of that and beginning to meet with people and connect with people. I had no idea. The reason we moved here in 2011 and we didn't launch a first gathering called City Church until 2014 was because it was three years of me laying in bed till 3 a.m. thinking, I don't know how you're going to do this, God. I didn't pray enough, candidly. I should have prayed more. I understood in those moments the great need that I have. As we prepare to plant a new church, the bridge church to go out from us, I don't know how God's gonna do that. There's so many unknowns about what God is gonna do. We need to be a people of prayer because it shows us our desperate need. These disciples understood how needy they were for God to be at work. They weren't trying to figure it out on their own. And because of that, they went to God in prayer. The disciples had so many obstacles in front of them. They knew their need. Third, seeds of unity are sown in prayer. Notice what it says. Again, look closely at verse 14. All these with one accord. All these with one accord. They were unified in their hearts because they prayed. Because of their prayer, there was unity that was built. Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter four, he instructs the church. He says to the church, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. You have to work for this. There's, unity doesn't just happen. Don't do it right now. But if you look across the room, I guarantee you there's someone in an earthly sense that you're like, yeah, that didn't really, I didn't really like the way they talked to me the other day. I didn't really like that they didn't invite me to that party. I didn't really like that that didn't go my way. I really didn't like that situation. Or they kind of, you know what? They jumped in front of me in line in the coffee you know, deal. They didn't pay for my coffee. Whatever, I don't know what could have happened in your world, but my guess is that at some point or another, one of us has offended one another. I tell you all the time, here's my promise to you, I'm gonna let you down. All right, I'm gonna do everything I can. I'm gonna love you, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna do all the, but I'm probably gonna let you down. And there could be a, a breakdown in that unity because of that. But we are committed to it because we have to strive for it. If you haven't been downstairs in our family room, this is a place that we gather in smaller groups sometimes. You go down along the way, it's in the basement here. We have it on our wall, Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell in unity. We have that there because we gather sometimes in small groups and it's important that we remember that we're focused. They were of one accord and how did they build that one accord? How did that, that, that unity come together? because they were committed in prayer. As we pray, do you know what happens? 
all those earthly small things become just that because they don't, none of those are important. You know what matters most? That I know that I'm a sinner that is praying to an almighty God who hears my prayers and in some way is going to respond and move in accordance to my prayer, just like he's going to do that with you, my fellow sinner, brother or sister. We are unified in our need for the gospel. We are unified in what Christ has done for us. In all those things, as we pray together, walls come down and unity is formed. Seeds of unity are sown. And this is why I believe that they committed themselves to be of one accord as they prayed. Notice the next word it says, with one accord were devoting themselves. That word devoting is an action item. It is something that they were committed to. They devoted themselves. This is an aspect of the community coming together and they are in a sense made to pray. They said we have to pray. They knew they could do nothing else. Think about again the task that was in front of them. It was a great task. Brothers and sisters, the same task they were given has been given to us. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The reason I want you to go back if you missed last week's sermon is because it's the same Holy Spirit that is at work in these disciples, is at work in us today, that we will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's what we're called to do. Really everything else is worthless. Just the other day I heard, of course, it's March Madness, and one of my favorite coaches is now the coach of Kansas State. His name's Jerome Tang. And he says almost every press conference as he's been asked about his role as a first-year head coach for these teams, he says, my calling is ministry. My passion is basketball. What I'm called to do is to develop and train these young men to know the truth, to be the husbands and fathers that God has called them to be. I just happen to get to do that through basketball. Brothers and sisters, I don't care what you do. Your calling according to God's word is to be his witnesses, to build the kingdom of God wherever that is. And you do, maybe your passion is fill in the blank. My passion is spreadsheets. I love spreadsheets. I'm good at spreadsheets. I do that very well. By the way, this isn't me. I'm just speaking facetiously for Pastor Kyle this morning. (laughs) But my calling is ministry. As I crank these spreadsheets out and crunch numbers and do all that I do with my neighbors and I share my report with the other guy and talk to him about that, I'm going to realize my ultimate responsibility is to build the kingdom in his heart, in his life, in whatever way I have an opportunity to do so. How are you going to do that when you're looking at a spreadsheet all day if you don't pray and ask God, the Holy Spirit, to move through you and give you those opportunities to open those doors, whatever it might be? Only God can do that. See, here's the other thing that we know to be true. If we're alive in Christ today, friends, it's because God has raised us to life. I know a good number of you, and I know those of you that I know in this room as I look around the crowd, I know that there's not any one of you that I know that say, hey, I'm pretty good at saving people. I mean, maybe as a lifeguard, but I'm talking about like real death to life, Jesus type of saving people. I don't think there's any one of you that would say, raise your hand, hey, pastor, I'm actually pretty good at that. If you know that it's not you who save people and you know that it is only the power of God that raises dead men and women to life, how do you intend to do that if you haven't sought God in prayer? 
You won't. Again, it's not your job. What your job is, is to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with the right words, the, the wisdom of what steps to take, the direction to go, the people to speak with, to ordain your circumstances so you engage with those people and to give you the courage and the boldness to have the right words to say when you get there. Whatever that is, it's all God. We have to seek him through prayer. Sometimes we get this backwards. We think too often, I know I do this very often, that we should do as much as we can do and then pray. I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna plan, I'm gonna strategize, I'm gonna do, you know, all these sorts of things. And at the end of the day, after I've kind of figured out I've done all that I know to do, then I'm gonna pray and ask God to kind of do the rest. As you hear me say that, you understand, you realize the idiocy that that statement is. It's futile, no. We must be people who seek God and pray and pray and pray and ask God to do all the work that he can do. And then we take our small seed of faith and do the little bit that we can do. After we've bathed it in prayer, covered it in prayer, we need to stop being so many people of action. And I know the culture compels us and calls us and directs us to always be doing things. The best thing that we can do is pray and ask God to move as only he can and then to lead us in the small steps of faith that we should engage in. As I talk about this, I hope you can understand the connection here. Pastor Kyle mentioned that we're gonna gather on the 30th of this month. By the way, the 30th is our nine-year anniversary as a church. It just happened to fall on that day. We didn't plan it intentionally. I realized it sort of after. But March the 30th, we're gonna gather in our first night of prayer for 2023. Brothers and sisters, as I've encouraged you and invited you and asked you to come together in prayer, one of my anxieties, I'll just confess to you, is that you might begin to see this or hear this as some sort of law on you, that you have to come to prayer, and if you don't come to gather with us in prayer, that you're not checking the appropriate box and that God doesn't love you or something like that. Just let, let me just be very clear with you. I don't want you to come to prayer to check a box. I don't want you to come to gather with us in prayer in order to appease me or any one of our elders or anybody else in the world. I want you to to gather in prayer with the same heart that these disciples came to the Lord with, understanding that they came with faith. They came understanding how desperate they were for God to move, that they had a great need. They came to sow seeds of unity to build themselves up as a family. They came because they wanted to devote themselves to the only thing that ultimately could move God to work, which was prayer. So I invite you to come to pray out of love, out of need, I need your prayers. Our church family, we need one another's prayers. And so I plead with you to come that evening and pray with us, pray for me, pray for one another, pray for the work that we've been called to do and ask God for his help. Recognize our need for God and then also recognize that we have faith in a great God who will hear our prayers and will answer them. He will move. So I encourage you, we've made dinner available, by the way, as he said. It's simply just to make life a little easier for you. Come to dinner, cheapest meal. It'll also be a very good meal, all right? So don't worry, just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's not gonna be good, all right? So come to meal at, for, for dinner at six o'clock. Here's the fun thing. Here's what I know. Some of you, since we've gone to three services, some of you have not seen your own family members, the City Church family, since January. You haven't, you haven't even seen one another, so an opportunity to come together for a meal, 
Again, trying to make it easy so you don't have to cook. You can just show up here. If you can't get here by 6, that's fine. Come whenever you can, but prayer will start at 7. All right? We love to be together, to have the unity of the body as we pray and seek God. I wrote too long of a sermon for this morning, so I apologize. But I want to very quickly, because I'm almost out of time, just skip one section or kind of scan this very quickly, invite you to go back and study this closer. But in verse 16, it, uh, Peter has stood up. And Peter says to all those who are gathered, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Peter references the scriptures. As we think about the scriptures, yes, we have this instruction and this calling. We can see this. We can learn a lot through the way the church came together in prayer. But we can also learn a lot of where Peter sort of staked his life. And that was on the word of God. The scriptures told him that we had to do the work of replacing Judas. The scriptures were trusted by Peter and all those that they were the word of God. And finally, the scriptures is what directed them. He quotes a psalm. Peter knew the Old Testament, knew the psalms well enough to know those psalms told us how we should do these things. And so the scriptures teach us and the scriptures direct us. That's what I wanted to tell you. I was going to spend more time on that, but I don't have that time this morning. But as we come to the close of this, here's what I want to wrap up before we receive from the Lord's table. It says in verse 15 again, in those days, Peter stood up. Peter stood up. We can't too quickly gloss over who is the one who is speaking here. Peter, who just like Judas, denied Jesus. Peter denied him three times. Judas, yes, sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, but in the same way, Peter denied Jesus. He had a fear of man. He was more worried about saving his own life than he was about the kingdom. And as I think about that, as we think about that, I hope that that gives you hope. Peter gives us hope because he is a perfect example of one who messed it all up, just like Judas did. He messed it up. Some of you in this room, I believe, I've got to just know, I trust that there's some of you here that are thinking back on your life and you're saying, Peter messed it all up. I've messed it all up. I missed this. I didn't do this right. Whatever that thing in your past is and you're allowing it to sort of rule over you in such a way that you think I can't be used by God, There's no way that that God could work in my life. Let Peter this morning give you hope because Peter is the one who's now leading the church. And how does he do that? Peter also leads with hope. There's almost zero doubt in my mind while it's not recorded for us that Peter is thinking about his denial of Christ as he is telling the story of replacing Judas and had to be thinking to himself, it could have been me. I could have been the one who was out in the field with my bowels burst open. But God's grace came and met him and he was restored. I've stood on the shores where in John chapter 21, it's recorded for us that Jesus comes after being raised from the dead. Peter and a few of the disciples have said, all right, to heck with this, we're gonna go out and go fishing. Not a bad idea. A few of us probably would have done that. They're out on the, on the Sea of Galilee fishing. They're not catching anything, though. And Jesus comes to them. They don't know it's Jesus. And Jesus comes to them and says, hey, are you catching anything? They say, no. He says, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. 
And as they cast their nets on the other side of the boat, they have a massive haul. They bring it in. And they bring that haul into the shores. And Jesus takes those fish that Peter caught and he cooks them breakfast. I've stood in that place. I actually took a rock illegally. Don't tell anyone. Because I wanted to remember that story. Peter and his life is a great testimony to my life of the power of God to restore and redeem. And this is what Jesus says to Peter, John chapter one, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He he said to him, Jesus says, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And Peter did what he was restored to do. He now is standing up here as we read Acts chapter one, leading the church to prayer and going to lead the disciples as the Holy Spirit comes upon them to go to the ends of the earth. And because Peter was restored because of God's grace in his life, we can now worship this same Jesus today. What a gift that is. Have hope because of Peter's life. Have hope because we're gonna come and receive from the Lord's table that is the reminder, the symbol of why God accepts us, why God hears our prayers because we have been welcomed into his family through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to celebrate as we receive from him today. The worship team is gonna begin to lead us and as they lead us, I just wanna give you some instructions. The elders are going to sort of dismiss us a little bit by section so that we can come and receive from the table. If you haven't been with us before, whatever section you're in, just know we're gonna ask that you exit sort of to the outside, the wings of our space. You'll come down this and return through the center aisle. That allows everybody to get back to their space. And as you can tell, we're a little bit congested, which is a great gift from God. We're thankful for it, but just be patient with us as we receive from the table. Um, The worship team's gonna lead us. You can spend some time in prayer. Uh, before you come, but remember, remember what Christ has done in your life. The same way Peter could remember what Christ had done in his life, that there was no reason that Jesus should use him. That's our story, that's my story, that's your story. But we serve a great God who loves us, who sacrificed, he laid down his life to redeem us. So let's come to the table and remember the gift of his grace. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m., and we look forward to meeting you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God, the good of the city, and the hope of the world. Oh, oh, you're